not here with us today, but perhaps some of you will remember when the practice of having a verse of the year started. Um, but it's a, a practice that is very wonderful. It was foreign to me, literally and figuratively. I, I did not know of this um, back in Portugal. But it's a wonderful tradition to have a verse of the year, a promise of the Lord as our uh, text for the whole year where we return to it often, where we keep returning to it, both for our individual encouragement, but as well for our congregational uh, inspiration together. And I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I presume you know what the verse of this of the year for 2022 is. Uh, and if you don't, uh, I'll tell you. It's Philippians 4.19. And my God shall supply your every need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And I've been greatly blessed personally this year by coming back often to this verse. My needs supplied. By reminding myself often in prayer, in meditation, that whatever need I have, that the Lord will supply. He does nothing but supply our need. And when we think about our needs, we often think in a very superficial manner, don't we? We think about our needs for clothing, for shelter, for home, and for a home, for money, for health, for uh, those kind of things. We think of food. Perhaps if we, are, if we are a bit more spiritual, certainly, but it said, if we are a bit more spiritual, we'll start to think about our spiritual needs as well. And usually we'll realize that those spiritual needs are actually even more pressing and more needy, needful than, than many times the things that we consider to be physical needs. But as we grow and mature in the faith, it is so often the case that we realize more and more about our needs, both spiritually and physically. As you grow older, you also, your body also doesn't work quite in the same way and you realize that your need uh, is bigger and bigger. But I think it is in the providence of God. Because as you realize more of your need physically, you also realize more of your spiritual needs. And as you grow older and mature in the faith, you realize that actually I'm needy of the Lord for everything. I need His grace for every single moment, for every single minute, for every single second of my life. Were it not for the grace of God, I wouldn't even be taking this breath right now. My heart would stop beating. I wouldn't get up out of the bed in the morning. I wouldn't be able to tie my, my, my shoelaces. I wouldn't be able to do anything. Have you come to the realization of this? That every need you have, or to the realization that you have all this need. Because brothers and sisters, your need is greater than you realize. But God is able to supply your every need. That is the promise that we have in his word. That he will supply all your need. 
all your needs supply from the most from the biggest most significant of needs to the smallest most insignificant insignificant of needs that you don't see or meditate upon he will supply do you need strength he will he is your strength do you need uh, wisdom he is the god of all wisdom he's your refuge he's, do you need comfort he, he he is your stronghold as we read your fortress are you falling into sin and are you in need of being rebuked and chastened? He is a loving, heavenly Father. You might think you know your needs well, but I'll tell you, the Lord knows them better. And the Lord says, He promises all of them supplied. And I ask, what, what, what does this have to do with the text that we just read, Pastor? Well, we find in this text, in Acts 18, Paul, in a very needy situation. Perhaps doesn't come across clearly from the, the text itself. But when you consider what had just happened to him over the last few months before he arrived at, at Corinth... When you read some of the letters that he wrote from Corinth at this particular time, when you read what he wrote later to the church in Corinth about how he felt when he came to them, you realize, oh, actually Paul was in a very desperate situation. It is very easy, isn't it? Especially as you read through the book of Acts, and Luke doesn't give us all the details of everything that's going on. He's quite select in those things that he's recording for us. It is very easy for us to, to have the wrong impression about Paul. It is very easy for us to think about Paul as this kind of uh, uh, giant uh, of the faith. And he is. But to think of him as some kind of person who was beyond the the struggles and the frailties of human life. To think of him as the, some kind of superhuman uh, action figure, action hero of, of Hollywood movies, like this kind of Sylvester Stallone Rambo kind of figure. He just pushes forward and he's, very, he's relentless and he's very brave and he, he suffers nothing and he, he's always courageous and bold and, and he's full of zeal and diligence. And that's true and he's full of firmness and determination. In the face of adversities, persecution. But he is, it's easy for us to think of him as this kind of adamant rock that cannot be uh, moved. When actually, that doesn't correspond with reality. Paul was oftentimes assailed in his flesh in his humanity he was perplexed hard pressed he says he was struck down in the face of mounting opposition he was often a word that is used nowadays i would say perfectly fitting with this this experience of the apostle paul in corinth is the word depressed was he clinically depressed? I don't know. I'm not a clinician. But when you read some of the things that he says, when you understand uh, the, the background of what's happening in, to him here in Corinth, 
he realized that he was in a very needful state. He later wrote to this church in Corinth, to the church that we read about the planting of, the, of it in Acts chapter 8. He wrote to them. He said, well, brethren, we have this treasure. We have the gospel. We have the, the, the preciousness of the gospel in earthen vessels, in jars of clay. We have this wonderful treasure the excellence of the power, so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And he says to them, we are hard-pressed on every side. But then he says, yet we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Well, the picture, brothers and sisters, that Paul gives is, well, yes, and it is by design that we suffer these things, because the treasure is on the inside, and when we bro break the earthen vessels, and when these jars of clay break, uh, they burst forth the precious oil that is inside of it so that everyone would see the life in Christ that we have you might say you still haven't said why you think Paul is depressed or why you think Paul is in this needy situation think about it think about what led to this situation or the months leading to this to this situation Paul has been chased around half of the world the known world, that is. He started going through the, 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 the region of, uh, of Asia Minor, Galatia, and he, he, he crossed the sea at Troas. He gets to Philippi. He, he has a few conversions there at Philippi, but immediately people start uh, pushing him, and, and he he's being hassled and chased out of town. He goes from Philippi, he arrives at Thessalonica, and, and in Thessalonica, some believe, but he was persecuted terribly there, and he had to run for his life. He goes from Thessalonica to Berea. Some believe, and he's enjoying the, the, the fruits of ministry there, and what happens, the, the, the Jews from Thessalonica come to Berea, Berea, and they persecute him there, so he has to flee to Athens. He gets to Athens, and he's weary there. He's bothered. As, as, the, as um, Luke tells us that he was bothered in his spirit. His spirit was provoked within him. He, he was struggling. Although there was no persecution there, the, the reception to the gospel was minimal. So he arrives here at Corinth, and I think he's drained up. I think he's drained. I think he's used up everything that he had. Corinth was a big city. Let me just tell you, because we will spend three weeks on this, on this passage. Let me just give you a little bit of an introduction to Corinth. Corinth was the, the capital, the biggest city in the region of Achaia, in the, in the province of Achaia. If you have a map there, it would be interesting for you to turn there, because you can see uh, a little bit of what I 
about to say to you, if you turn uh, to the maps in the back of your Bible, usually there's a one map that says a Paul's missionary journeys. And by the way, these maps were put in the back of our Bibles precisely for this kind of uh, help that we would see and visualize. If you would turn, see there, you can see that Corinth, if you can find Greece there, Corinth is just there in a very small isthmus in a, in a strait in a very thin piece of land. Corinth was the greatest city in that region of Achaia. He had been even greater in the past. But he was destroyed or invaded by the Romans in 146 before Christ. and was rebuilt about a hundred years later. About a hundred years uh, after the, uh, its destruction. And a hundred years before actually Paul was there. So he was a quite a new city. He was rebuilt by uh, a man called Julius Caesar. I don't know if you heard of him. And he was a Roman colony. Part of the reason why he was such an important city, you can see there on the map. It's there in a, in a passageway between Macedonia and the Peloponnesian uh, uh, um, so the Peninsula. And it's there that a lot of transactions, a lot of commerce would happen. Anything going north, anything going south. In fact, anything going east from, it, it, uh, from Italy, from Rome, to the west, to, the, to, to Asia Minor, would oftentimes, instead of going all the way around the... the the Peloponnesian Peninsula would oftentimes be unloaded on one side of that strait of that isthmus where Corinth is and be taken by, by transport, land transport to the other side and then taken by sea to Asia Minor. It was, a, was the center of commerce in the, in the Roman Empire in that sense. It was a privileged location. Corinth was situated between two ports. And why do I mention this as a way of introduction to the city? Because oftentimes where there is these kind of ports in, in history, these cities tend to become uh, centers for immoral living, for depraved living. Where a lot of commerce and people come and go, that's where you start to find a lot of immorality. And it was certainly the case with Corinth. Corinth was known as the sin city of the ancient world. In fact, you know that their fame was so great that the, the verb to Corinthianize was the, the, the meaning of that word was to behave immorally, to behave in a depraved way, to act immorally. Or if you called someone a Corinthian girl, you're basically calling that girl, that lady, that woman, that person, you were calling her a prostitute. If You know the Greeks love their stage plays, don't you? They had all these kinds of theaters and all of that. 
the Corinthian was always displayed as a, in those stage plays as a, a drunken, immoral, depraved person. I'm going to refrain from saying uh, in our culture what uh, what what nation goes as as in the same terms. But we know this. We, it's like that that the inhabitants of Corinth they're the worst in terms of of their morality. If I were to say, oh, John over there is a Corinthian, everyone knew that I was saying that John over there is a very immoral person. And that is the city of Corinth. But in fact, I don't need to tell you much more. If you read the letters that Paul in, uh, would write to the church in Corinth, you realize how, how immoral that culture is. Because the culture was so immoral that it was seeping through to the, to the Corinthian church, church. And Paul had to write two letters to, to combat that, to, to call them to repent and to turn from their immoral living. You know some of the things that were happening in the church of Corinth. Immoral, debased things were happening there. Corinth had a, a, a necropolis. Every city or almost every big city, major city in, in Greece had a necropolis. A necropolis is, uh, is, is Acropolis. It's the higher city. Uh, cities would be built, uh, the main part of the city would be built on the, on the valley. And then there would be a mountain. And the Acropolis, the higher city, were, was where the, the, the gods were to be worshipped, where the, the cults were, were spreading. It was said that the Acropolis of Corinth was the most beautiful Acropolis in the, in the whole of Greece. You can see pictures of, of it to this day. And in the Acropolis, there was a temple to the, to the goddess uh, Aphrodite, or the Roman goddess Venus. And in that temple, it is said that there were tens of thousands of prostitutes, cultic prostitutes, that every night would descend upon the city and act out their job as a service to their God. So this is what's happening here. And just as a footnote, just as an aside, we will speak about it more next week, I'm sure, but isn't it wonderful, brothers and sisters, as we look at now, wonderful to look at the city, but isn't it amazing that it is in this city in particular that God says in verse 10 and 11, do not be afraid, but, do, and, but speak, and do not keep silence, verse 11, for I have many people in this city. God did not say this, a Philippi, of Thessalonica, of Berea. God did not say this of Athens with all its wisdom and all its, with all its pomp and culture. It is in the cesspool, in the pit of Corinth that God says, I have many people there. I have many diamonds in the middle of that muddy field.
You see, God often dis- does this, doesn't he? Not often. I think it is by design what he... He says that not many of the, the smart and the learned come to Christ. Not many of those who are intellectuals get saved. But God loves to save rotten sinners. He loves to redeem rotten sinners. Kind of reminds me, although in a different way, of, of that interaction between Abraham and, uh, and God to do with Sodom. In this case, it's God saying, no, no, there's actually a lot of them there. There's hearts prepared. There's people I've, I've predestined in eternity past. There's my people there. But this is a small aside. We'll probably look at it more next week. Paul needed to be encouraged. And God sent his encouragement. Paul was despondent. He was struggling. He wrote to the Thessalonians. Uh, He wrote to the Corinthians that in much trembling and fear he came to them. That's what he says to the Corinthians when when he lives back these days of Acts 18. He writes to them in his first letter and he says, In much distress, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling I came to you. When he writes to the Thessalonians, he writes the letter to the Thessalonians here in Corinth uh, as Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia. Paul pens this first letter to the Thessalonians and he says to them, Brethren, in all our affliction, this is Paul talking about this time, he says, in all our affliction, in all our distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. Oh, Paul was struggling. But you don't need to read much into the, in the Word of God. You don't need to know much of the, the Word of God. You don't need to be a Bible scholar. You, in fact, I would hazard to say you can open your Bible at random. And in any page, in, all, in every page, you will find this one truth expressed one way or the other. That God is a God of encouragement. That God is a God that supplies our needs. And Paul is in need of encouragement. And God sends encouragement to him. He says to the Thessalonians, even as Paul and uh, as uh, Silas and Timothy come, Paul writes the letter to the Thessalonians as he says, "I was much comforted. I was encouraged, brethren, when I heard from Timothy that you are growing in the faith. I was encouraged. He was at the bottom. He was discouraged." Nothing seemed to go like he he imagined. And we already spoke about what had happened in the months before. And it is at this precise moment that God sent some encouragement his way. First by sending some friends, new friends. We read of Acula and and of, of Priscilla. God says you need some friends. I'll send you some friends. I'll send you some people to spend some time and to to really invest. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that Aquila and Priscilla actually become, or Priscilla in in particular, actually uh, become, both of them, and Priscilla in particular, become great partners of the gospel to Paul. 
often showing up in other letters. It's not that they just acquainted one uh, here at Corinth and they just went their separate ways. No, they, they, there was a partnership here that lasted for decades after this. And Paul sent them, and God sent them to Paul as an encouragement. They were, we read, kicked out of Rome by Claudius, the emperor. Claudius, the emperor, uh, said that all the Jews had to depart from Rome. And here there's an interesting footnote again. And uh, uh, the Roman historian Suetonius, he records this. Uh, he has a, a biography uh, of Claudius' uh, life. And he says that he uh, expelled the Jews from Rome because they were always rioting because, uh, on the account of this one guy called Crestus. Crestus with a knee. Many biblical scholars, many historians believe that Suetonius here committed a, a, an error uh, in his uh, account that actually it would be more fitting with a, because no one knows of a, a name Crestus as well. It's a, it's a, a name that is not heard of in, in the history of names. Many historians believe that actually Suetonius was talking about Christ. That there was a lot of rebelling, a lot of revolt in, the, in Rome in these days because of this man named Christ. And it is fitting. Because wherever the, the, the gospel of Christ is going, throughout the rest of the known world, in Asia Minor, in, in Macedonia, in Achaia, it is causing re revolts. I'm sure that whoever was taking the, the gospel at this time to, the, to Rome was also finding that the Jews there were revolting against them. And the Roman emperor, Claudius, because he didn't want to deal with riots in his own capital city, he just says, okay, all the Jews out. You go and sort yourselves and all those things in another place. And that's how Aquila and, the, and Priscilla arrive at Corinth. I believe they were already Christians. I believe that here they were, were already Christians. Because he does not tell us that Paul uh, preached the gospel to them and they were converted. I believe that when they arrived at Corinth and they sat down at the synagogue, that they were already Christians. There was a, a, a tradition, some historians tell us, that in the synagogues, the, the, the Jews would separate themselves according to their, to their craft. So in, if we'd imagine here, let's say the, the, the building this, uh, was full, uh, you wouldn't sit with your family. You would sit, okay, so the, the, the tent makers sit there, the... The, the, tax, the tax collectors would probably not be welcomed in the, in the, the synagogue. But the, the, the artisans, the artists, the musicians, and they, they kind of separate themselves in, in their, according to their, to their line of work. So it's not too hard to imagine that actually Paul and Aquila and Priscilla, being the three of them, uh, tent makers, leather workers, could be another translation, they worked with leather, they sat together at the synagogue and, uh, and actually they realized they had much more in common than just their Jewish uh, descendancy. That they were all Christians. They're, the three of them were Christian. And the, the relationship did cement. Paul received hospitality from them. He lived with them. And he was encouraged by them. 
I wonder if it was Aquila and Priscilla that gave Paul this love for the city of Rome that he speaks of when he writes the letter to the Romans from Corinth in the second visit that he does to this city. So it is wonderful. Paul is encouraged by friendship, not only by new friendships, but by old friends coming. We read in verse 5 that Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia. Paul was compelled, and then Paul was compelled by the Spirit. So not only new friends, but God sends some old friends, some, old, some people who were a part already of Paul's life. And here it might be interesting, because we actually didn't, Luke does not tell us this, to try and understand where, where we're at with these travels back and forth. If you read the letters, you realize that Paul will often be sending Silas here, Timothy there. And, and But it is interesting for us to realize what is happening here in the greater context of the New Testament. You remember when Paul came to Athens, he then sent the brethren uh, with all speed to go and, ca uh, and fetch uh, and command Silas and Timothy to come to Athens. But then Luke does not tell us that, Paul, uh, that Silas and Timothy actually came to Athens. But that does not mean that they didn't. In fact, they did come to Athens. Turn with me. Let's, uh, this is an interesting thing for us to, to understand and to see with our own eyes. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Let us exercise a little bit our fingers and, uh, and read it. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3, and verse 1. And again, this does talk about Paul's state emotional state at this time verse 1 and 2 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 therefore this is this is the letter that Paul is about to write in Acts 18 Paul writes a letter from to the church at, at Thessalonica at this moment and he writes this letter at this time he says therefore when we could no longer endure it we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. You see, actually, Timothy and Silas, while Paul was in Athens, they came to Athens, and Paul says, well, we could no longer endure it, so we actually thought it was better, we... He is not using any kind of royal we here. He's talking about me, Silas, and Timothy. We thought it was better just to send Timothy to you, to Thessalonica, so that you would be encouraged, so that he would minister to you, so that he would establish you concerning the faith. But we also know that Silas went somewhere. And I, I truly believe that Silas, in this case, Paul sent to Philippi. Why do I say this? Because we read in other accounts that 
that the church at Philippi at this moment sent an offering to Paul to aid him in his ministry. That's what he says in Philippians 4. We'll not, we won't read it now, but he says when, he de when Paul departed from Macedonia to Achaia, that no other church shared or sent an offering, but only the church at Philippi. Only the Philippian church sent some money. How would that money come to him if it was not for, by Silas? You see, Paul was encouraged here in many ways and supplied for in many ways. I believe that when it says here that he was compelled by the Spirit, that he was this offering as well to release him from his uh, secular employment that he was currently doing to testify to the Jews more insistently, more, more, more clearly and more, and more regularly. But it was the, the great encouragement of hearing what Timothy had to say from the church in Thessalonica that really spurred them on. Paul says in, Philipp in 1 Thessalonians, if you still have your fingers there, chapter 3, verse 6, look at what he says. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly designed to see us as we also to see you. And then verse 8, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. What is Paul saying? Look, we're struggling here. I'm struggling here. You know what? If you grow, if you live, we live. If you stand fast in the Lord, we are encouraged. If you, Paul's desire was to see his children grow. And that's what he sees. And the other encouragement, so we have encouragement number one, friends, and encouragement number two, conversions. We read, don't we, that after this encouragement of friendship, companionship was given to Paul, that he com was compelled by the Spirit and started to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, but they refused. And Paul shook his garment shook his garments and said to them, while well, your blood be upon your heads and I'm clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Let me just say this. The significance of what Paul does here cannot be overstated. And we don't understand it because we're not Jews living in the first century. But they understood what Paul said and what Paul did. And they were shocked and they were offended. You know, there was this tradition among the, the Jews in the first century, that especially the Jews that lived in the diaspora, the Jews that lived outside of the Holy Land. They had this tradition that whenever they came into the Promised Land, whenever they returned to Israel, they would shake off the dust of their feet. Why? Because they didn't want to bring anything uh, profane, anything Gentile, into the holy land. They didn't want to bring any unclean, unholy thing into the holy land. So the tradition among, the, especially the more Pharisees of them, would be to shake off the, the dust just before they enter the land so that they 
wouldn't bring anything unholy to the land. What is Paul doing here? And they, were, they wouldn't be absent-minded. They would understand the, what Paul was telling them. Paul just shakes off his dust and he says, I'm not taking any unclean thing from you. What is he trying to say? I believe he's trying to say the same thing that he says to the church at Philippi. That with the coming of Christ, there is no longer a Jew nor Gentile. That actually now the true Jews, the true Israelites, the true children of Abraham are those, as always were, those that believe by faith. That you are the uncircumcision. That Paul is saying, you are the dogs. You are the ones who are Gentiles. I shake off the dust. I'm not going to, I wash my hands of your blood. They were very glad. Some, a few decades earlier, maybe not these Jews in particular, but the, they were very glad to accept the blood of Jesus to be upon their heads, weren't they? They said, let his blood be upon the, our heads and, the, uh, and our children's heads. And what does Paul say? It's your responsibility. So you see, the Bible does talk, doesn't it? And we'll look at more a little bit next week. But the Bible does talk about human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Paul says, I'm clean. I've given you the gospel. I've showed you Christ. I've pointed you to Christ. I've opened up the scriptures for you. I've, pers- I've, I've pleaded. I've persuaded. There's, there's some pretty strong... Uh, Verbs here, but they are verbs that we've looked at before. But I, I've, I've done what I've needed to do. You know, oftentimes, and this might be an, an interesting point for us to, to maybe stop as well. But oftentimes, we take on responsibilities for which we don't have the ability to, and we are burdened by the weight of responsibility of things that we are not able to do. Does that make sense? Paul did not have the ability to change their minds. So therefore, he had no responsibility over it. Someone was saying this uh, recently to me, and it does apply to us, to generally to all Christians. Our responsibility is only as far as our ability goes. Your responsibility as someone who is preaching the gospel to an unbeliever is to lead them to the water. You cannot force them to drink. That's where your responsibility ends. And in that sense, Paul is saying, look, I've led you to the water. I've placed you there. I've shown you the, the fount of living waters. You don't want to drink? You're blaspheming the Lord? Your blood be upon your heads. I'm innocent. And he departs. But there is, there is an element here. Of, of, I don't know if Luke wrote this with a smile on his face, but he's so upset with the Jews, isn't he? He's, he? I don't want anything else to do with you guys. I'm going. I'm departing. What, what does he do? He goes and he enters the house of Justus, who lived just next door to the synagogue. It's like, I, I want to be far away from... 
But he goes and he just, he couldn't really be far away from his countrymen. And we know this. He talks with much love. Although these things were happening, although he says, from now on I'm going to the Gentiles, and he departs, and he's very strong-willed, and, and he's upset, I'm certain. But his love, his, his heart, his, his desire was still to see his countrymen saved. And Paul says this to the Romans later on. In many ways he says that I would be a curse, that I would go to hell if I could get my fellow countrymen to go to heaven. So what happens? People are saved. People are saved. The ruler of the synagogue is saved. He believed on the Lord with all his household. And many Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So you see, that is the point that I want to bring and we'll close. And I'll close by saying this. Let me just, yeah. Isn't it exciting, brothers and sisters, as we think about the needs of Paul at this present moment in his ministry, as we think about our own needs, the needs of our brethren, isn't it exciting, encouraging to see that God supplies the needs. Paul was in need of more things than just encouragement. He was actually in need of the financial support of Philippi so he could dedicate himself more fully. He was actually in need of, uh, of other things. But God here, and we'll see at least a couple of more encouragements that God sends Paul's way in the next couple of weeks. But Paul, God sends Friendship, companionship to Paul. Uh, God sends companionship and friendship to Paul to encourage him. And he sends him conversions. He puts a spring on his step. And he will continue to encourage him by speaking with him, by having fellowship with him, by telling him, verse 10 and, and 11, and by even sending persecution his way and hardship. I know it's a, it's a seemingly incoherent statement to say that you can be encouraged by persecution and hardship. But as you'll see, indeed you can. So let us be encouraged. Let us be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that indeed our God will supply our every need.